I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, and welcome to another episode of All Things Policy. I'm Megha Pardee. I'm currently working as a research analyst at the Takshila Institution. Uh, today we have with us Suez Desai, who studies defense and foreign policies of China. And he's currently studying traditional Chinese language at National Sun Yat-sen University, Kaohsiung, Taiwan. In today's episode, we are discussing a naval branch of China's People's, People's Liberation Army, that is planned. The naval branch of PLA completed 73 years in uh, service recently. So as Suish has highlighted, PLA Navy went to be seen as a chief force supposedly safeguarding overseas interests of China from being an assassin's mace. Uh, so discuss more on this topic, we have Suvesh with us today. Welcome, Suvesh. Hi, hi, Mega. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be podcasting. It's good to be back podcasting after a very long time. I remember podcasting regularly at All Things Policy in Takshashila until I came to Taiwan. So it's good to be back home. Yeah, and also you're today not as a host, but as a guest. How does that feel? It's good. It's a good feeling to be home. I put it in the simple words. It's good to be home. Okay, uh, so before we uh, talk about plan. Since you're in Taiwan, uh, I would love to hear about your experiences so far. Ah, there are a lot of experience. How can I tell you so many things? But I'll tell you something. Every China scholar, okay. every China scholar who wishes to pursue Chinese foreign policy, strategic policy, something about the party uh, going forward as his research should come to Taiwan. I know China would be an ideal place. One, because there is simplified. Two, because they offer a lot of scholarships. But if you are very serious about your work, and if you are, uh, research has to be doing, has to be, is considering history per se, Taiwan is the place because Taiwan gives you a uh, traditional script. Taiwan teaches you traditional script. There is no simplified script here. Due to this, once you learn the traditional script, it is easy to go to the simplified script. But if you learn the simplified script, I'm not sure if you can understand the traditional script. So it's a good feeling to be here and learning language. It's very rigorous. You have to study nine, 10 hours every day. You have to last three hours every day. And I am I am studying here for past 45, 50 days. And I have learned more than what I have managed to do in past four years in India. So it's a rigorous process. But yes, if you invest in it, the results are enriching. I would like to say that. So you, I think you also wrote an article on your experiences in while learning Mandarin. Can I just know like one or two incidences where you found it? Correct, correct. So it's, 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 there were a couple of funny instances. So when by while traveling, I because of my traveling to a new country, I was completely excited. And in my broken Chinese, I asked the air hostess in the plane itself, could I get some could I get some noodles? I think I used the wrong Chinese and I mm-hmm. actually interpreted it as could I get some cold could I get some cold noodles? And she offered me cold noodles. And I was shocked to eat that. But now, because for heating cold in India is not a very regular thing. So we heat everything. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and I was shocked. But now it's my staple food. I like eating cold noodles now. Also, also, but one thing that I'm not very 
acquainted is acquainted with or comfortable with here is drinking lukewarm or a cold coffee or tea because in india we are very acquainted with drinking hot coffee but here mm-hmm. hot is just lukewarm so even okay. despite liking cold noodles lukewarm coffee is something that is not yet in my system <laughs> my system is not yet familiar okay. with it there are multiple such experiences that i have experienced in taiwan i mm-hmm. i'm sure i'll send you the link of that article it's a good 2000 words article that i have uh, sent down in two weeks ago i'm sure you'll enjoy reading it i will <laughs> okay uh, so coming back to pla navy mm-hmm. so can you shed some light on early days of pla navy like why it was constituted and how it was constituted okay coming back to the home turf from fun stuff to the more serious stuff <laughs> yeah more serious stuff so i i wrote this article on april 23rd april 23rd is the pla navy's anniversary this april 23rd or that is april 23rd 2022 the pla navy completed 73 years of its formation it's a long journey it was formed on april 23 at baima a town under the administration of the current kaokang district in jiangsu province in china so it's a very interesting journey that the pla undertook because today it's become the world largest largest force numerically i am not entering debate whether qualitatively the naval vessels are as equivalent or powerful or more powerful than the fleet that us operates but at least quantitatively it's the largest force that is operational in the world right now but it it was a long journey because initially the focus of the pla navy was more towards protecting inland waters from 1985 when the former general secretary tang jiaoping changed china's strategic outlook by declaring that there was no longer a conventional or nuclear threat with the soviet union chinese focus shifted or started shifting from coastal defense to offshore defense so from 1949 to 1985 majority of its focus was towards or its strategy or its guided strategy was coastal defense so when you say the guided strategy of coastal defense it also means that the vessel that it commissions or the posture that it adopts also caters or adheres to the doctrine of coastal defense so they would naturally commission more defensive weapons they would, their posture would more be more defensive their positioning or their deployment would also be more defensive from 1985 it slowly started changing and then the pla navy largely the pla but also the pla navy adopted or went from the coastal defense to offshore defense now what is offshore defense you also have to remember what was happening what were the changing international structures this one i have already mentioned the driver for this is because of the reducing threat and the coming end of the cold war but yun clause i think 80s was when the third yun clause meeting was held and after uh, all of us know what happened after the third yun clause meeting united nation convention on clauses when the three parameters were being uh, marked or noted where the where territorial waters is 112 nautical miles followed by 200 nautical miles of exclusive economic zone and then open seas thus due to adoption of such international criteria as earlier on and the ratification of it under the third un clause china also started looking at protecting its offshore interest was it capable then of protecting overseas 
interest no but offshore it started moving towards offshore interest like they started exploring its eez and this is also the time where china started asserting itself in the near seas so for 75 it is when sparklies and uh, problems with sparklies started but they started asserting itself in 90s and early 200s so the transition from coastal defense to offshore defense happened in started happening in 80s from 80s this was under general secretary tang shao now under hu jintao general secretary hu jintao now we are jump, j- jumping 15 years ahead this changed from offshore defense to blue water defense now what is blue water defense and a lot of credit today for china's blue water defense or protecting its overseas interest goes to xi jinping that's not the case if and a lot of uh, people say that 2008 is an important year in china becoming assertive but the tradition but the change started happening in 2004 maybe three itself so what is offshore blue water navy blue water defense it is when a navy moves its posture and for protecting its overseas interest and with the move of posture it also changes its deployment it also changes its commissioning tactics it also changes how it acquires weapon or how it deals with the other navies competitors as well as friendly navies within those region so three important words to be remembered coastal defense until 1985 next 15 years offshore defense post 15 years under hu jintao a move started a move towards blue water defense they achieved the blue water defense in 2015 when the defense white paper categorically started saying that now we have to protect the overseas interest there is an upcoming research that manoj keval ramani and i or you are your boss and my former boss have worked which is on plas modernization we have empirically noted with evidence that after china moved to blue water defense and it started thinking about overseas protecting maritime overseas interest china has moved in that direction by the acquisitions kind of acquisitions and commissioning it has done under xi jinping from 2012 until 2020 so they are walking the talk that is what we have empirically proved in our paper it would be out very soon hopefully in the india quarterly journal so that's one way of looking at it this is the uh, this is understanding chinese text or uh, this is looking at chinese text especially science of military strategy and defense white paper to derive uh, coastal defense offshore defense and blue water defense and protecting overseas interest another way of looking at it is something that i borrow from dr raj doshi and professor travel professor am tell afraid they have categorically argued that the trifecta of the end of cold war the fall of soviet union the tiananmen square incident first gulf war and followed by the 1996 taiwan street crisis and the uss accidental bombing of the chinese embassy in belgrade in 1999 all these things together compelled the pla navy to adopt a certain kind of posture so until now i was talking about doctrine now i'm talking about posture within the given doctrine so due to this five reasons three reasons in particular and five other two reasons in general the pla adopted what in chinese you called as uh, in chinese as you called as shash hao chian which is the assassin's mace Now these are very difficult words to understand, but what it is simply it basically means a posture of denying your 
adversion. Why denying is important? This is generally adopted by the PLA per se towards its journey to become a world-class army, but particularly applicable for PLA Navy. Why denying posture? Because due to the activities of the United States, the PLA was worried that uh, activities like the Taiwan Strait Crisis or the Kosovo bombing, the uh, PLA was on China was worried that such things could also happen with China. And China was not capable of defending itself at that period of time against the US. So such a posture was adopted uh, or China started thinking about such posture in 1995-1996, especially with the Navy, where they thought of blinding the US forces, that is denying the seas to the US forces or acquisition of weapons in such a way that they would deny the near seas to the US forces in case of an escalation, say for example, Taiwan or South China Sea to the and now we are seeing that they have more or less acquired all the sea denial capabilities. The recent testimonies by successive uh, Indo-Pacific command chiefs have also said that if there is a war between the United States and the People's Republic of China over the issue of Taiwan or South China Sea tomorrow, it's a very rarity that US will win and US will not come out of the war unhurt. So they have managed to build sea denial capabilities and after building the sea denial capabilities or the blinding capabilities, now they are moving towards their target of being a world-class Navy. Uh, part of it, the quantitative part of it is already achieved in, I think, 2017 or 2018, when it overtook the United States uh, to be the world's largest Navy. And now they have leapfrogged 50 seats ahead. So let's see, it's going to be an interesting time to be a naval observer in the world. Oh my God, that was uh, such a long journey and so many things happening. I mean, I can imagine the impact of a few things like bombing of embassy, but I could not have probably guessed that how much is all, it also impacted their uh, plans to modernize Navy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that is quite interesting. So Suresh, is this a PL Navy, is, all, is it also responsible for operations in South China Sea? Yes, it is. It is. So for the, it's, it's a very difficult, it's a very tricky question because what kind of operations you are talking about? The Navy generally is responsible for offensive operation, defensive operation, and also HADR operations. But if you're talking about maritime coercion that uh, happens uh, at the time that which China has adopted, uh, it's not with the Navy. It's with the uh, maritime militia, Chinese maritime militia. And up to an extent, also post guards in certain areas are responsible for such operations. But they are backed by the PLA Navy. So defensive offensive operations, if escalation happens, yes. Deployments on the island, three islands that are already been militarized this year, yes. HADR operations, yes, PLA Navy. Patrolling, yes, PLA Navy. But coercion, maritime militia, and up to an extent, Chinese Coast Guard. These forces are responsible. But the... These are not watertight compartments because they are, since 2015, they are interoperable up to a certain extent, not completely. And also, Marine Militia and Coast Guards have started training with the PLA Navy since 2012 or 15, I can't remember, but since she took over. So, yeah, you can say that to a certain extent, they are responsible for training the militia to do coercion in the South China Sea against countries like Vietnam, Philippines, Indonesia, uh, Malaysia. Also, forget South China Sea, also in Indian Ocean against Indaman, where in 2020 or 2019, December, a ship was found very near to the Indian Tri-Command base on the Andaman Island. The Indian Navy had to 
threaten and shoo that ship away from Indian waters. So yes, maybe is indirectly responsible. Okay, so uh, you mentioned that the PLA has uh, become second only to US Navy, right? So did they do anything specific, or it was mostly like you know largely police driven? So what kind of modernization they are looking at? In the first, on the first question itself, I talked about that doctrine. So they have developed the Navy based on the doctrine, what they have said. So for example, initially, their aim, their ambition was to blind the US, to deny the seas to the United States. And so their, their acquisition was related to mines, their acquisition was related to corvettes, their acquisition was related to small ships, frigates, their acquisition was related to surface to sea missiles, surface to air missiles, surface to surface missiles. All these things were focused in the initial half. So if you understand a bit of tactical aspects of it, also submarines, submarines played a very important role in early modernization of PLA Navy. If you understand a tactical bit of it, such weapons cannot control sea. Such weapons are only used for denying seas. So this was the major acquisition that PLA took from 1990s to mid-2005, mid-2006 maybe. From 2005-2006, PLA started thinking about breaking free because they were on the way of achieving sea denial capabilities. So, for example, in 2005, PLA started thinking about the first aircraft carrier. They started thinking about the hospital ship that it has deployed in the Indian Ocean in 2008. It started thinking about landing paddocks. It started thinking about frigates, it started uh, big frigates, destroyers, it started thinking about cruisers. So what is tell us, tells us is the first 10 years were occupied by denial tools. Then from 2008-2009, they started commissioning slowly and steadily sea control tools. Now, as I've mentioned already, our research has pointed out that after completely commissioning the denial tools, PLA moved towards uh, bigger ves- vessels, bigger uh, vessels which have longer legs. So, for example, now the PLS focus is on cruisers. Now it is commissioning more and more destroyers. Now it is looking at uh, amphibious vessels. Now it is looking at aircraft carriers. They have plan of maybe commissioning five or six aircraft carriers. Now it is thinking of commissioning nuclear-powered submarines. Initially, they they were thinking of commission. Initially, they commissioned diesel electric submarines. So that's a journey that they undertook from denial to sea to sea control. From denial to sea control, making based on the threat assessment and national security demands. One important thing to note here is that now that they have almost gained sea denial, they are looking for overs- protecting overseas interest. And for that, a major requirement is mid-sea and mid-air refueling, which is not very easy to achieve. So now they are looking to also expand its mid-air and mid-sea refueling, refueling fleet so that they would not have to be docking again and again. Also, one cider along with this is that they are commissioning, they are getting port accesses across various countries in the Indian Ocean region, in the South China Sea. And they are also, for example, the recent Solomon Island Treaty. Uh, the details are not out yet, but something there it could possibly go to become a next naval outpost. It also already has an outpost at Djibouti. Pakistan could be the next naval, definitely could be a next naval outpost for the PLA Navy. So it shows its journey from the sea denial to sea control to a world class Navy. It's parallel to the modernization journey that the 
Navy has undertaken. Yeah, that's it. But yeah. more importantly, now all these things that we have spoken is the past. Right? But now, for someone like you, Megha, who is studying technology, advanced technology, PLA has moved towards sea control technology, but it is also acquiring denial technologies in advanced technologies. That is an issue that I think someone, someone like you and people who are interested in technologies should be considered. Uh, should consider studying. For example, certain kind of drones, certain kind of blinding lasers, all these are denial advanced technologies. So on one, it's a very interesting thing. Right? On one hand, where they are using technologically advanced tools, but denial tools. On the other hand, it is commissioning sea control tools because it has conventional denial tools. So it's an interesting pedagogy that PLA is under right now, where different kinds of tools are being commissioned and thought about for different interests. So I can say that from sea access to denial, sea control, and then now emphasis on technology. So these are the trends in PLA Navy, right? Correct, correct. Okay, well, next question. So Suresh, uh, how does this affect balance of power in East Asia? Or does this affect balance of power? It in does, East it does. It majorly affects the balance of power in East Asia because if you see numerically, so let's first talk about numerics and then talk about quality. Numerically, the PLA is already the world's largest navy. It has still denial capabilities and it can deny someone the only navy that can challenge PLA in the in its near seas is the United States. And uh, so which uh, and the successive commanders have categorically said that US need to commission certain types of vessel if it has to challenge the Chinese Navy. So it shows that the regional balance of power is changing. Perhaps it has already changed into China's favor, especially in the near seas. When I talk about near seas, I talk about Yellow Sea, South China Sea, and uh, East China Sea. I am not yet talking about Western Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean, but these are two important regions that are to be taken into consideration for the near future. Because if you read the Chinese doctrinal text, the emphasis, like PLA strategy, there is also emphasis on which oceans PLA should be controlling in specific times. So their first and major priority is the three seas, inland water and the three seas, then the two oceans, and then the rest of the region. The two oceans mean South Western Pacific Ocean and Northern Indian Ocean region. One very important for the United States because there is Guam, there is Japan. The second island chain is passes through the uh, is just before the Western Pacific Ocean. And when we talk about the Northern Indian Ocean, it is where India is right now. So these are the two important areas that we need to be very sure about. And PLA is approaching. Uh, PLA is modernizing, considering these two areas for the future. And definitely the balance of power for the region has changed because no other navy in the region, forget the regional actors like United States, extra-regional actors like United States. But can you tell me one navy who's capable of challenging the PLA in the region? No. They can do all the things. For example, in 2015, they, come, they made artificial islands. They militarized some of the artificial islands. They are regularly doing coercions in the South China, in the South China Sea with actors like Vietnam, Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia. And no one is able to do anything about it. So definitely the regional balance of power has changed. Up to what and what are the tolerance levels that is yet to be decided. But also it is important to study here the coercion framework that China has developed very well. So if you talk about 
balance of power has to be implemented up uh, the power has to be implemented in a framework so if china coerces its regional actors in the south china sea in such a way that the escalation is controlled there is a controlled escalation it also tried to do that with india but it didn't work out with it so but it has worked out in the on the himalayas so this look at this phenomenon controlled escalation it is it is such a powerful balance right now that controlled escalation is possible in the regions that china selects so definitely there is something to be worried about and if this model is to be implemented in the indian ocean region then we have we are in for a we as in india is in for a tough time going ahead so yes it is something that all the countries are to be worried about in the near future interesting so in short i mean to sum it up china is modernizing their navy they are expanding they are uh, implementing or trying to incorporate advanced technologies and apart from extra regional actors there's no other significant navy who can counter chinese navy i'm not even sure about the extra regional actor that you're talking about but let's believe that us is still in a position at least qualitatively mm-hmm. if not quantitatively to challenge the chinese coercion navy Yeah, uh, this was very interesting, Suresh. Thank you so much for this very enlightening, uh, you know, information. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, thanks, Mika. Thank you so much for having me. It was a good discussion. Thank you. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM Network. You can tune into them on the IVM Podcast app, ivmpodcast.com. or wherever you listen to your podcasts you can also follow ivm on social media the handle is at ivm podcasts on twitter facebook and instagram and hey if you'd like to dive into takshashila's research on technology strategy and economic affairs check us out at our twitter handle at takshashila inst or our website takshashila.org.in